Welcome to the LSI Behind the Wind podcast. I'm Sean Slatter, and for 30 years, I have dedicated my life to the science of business development. I've seen the impact of our work, which has evolved into economic development and now social impact. I'm so excited to be joined by Chuck Coonrad in this episode. Chuck and I have known each other for most of my life. He has been an incredible influence in my life and especially early in my career gave me some guidance on how to work as a consultant. And I have continued to refer to a lot of his work, including many of his books, the most famous of which is The Game of Work, which is also the name of his company, The Game of Work, which he is the president and CEO of that company. Chuck has a storied career working with a lot of Fortune 500 companies. And one of our common connections is we have worked with common clients over the years, including Boeing and AT&T, Northrop, the U.S. federal government. And we've been able to share a lot of our success and recommendations in working with these various clients. What I'm going to talk with Chuck about is his work, which really he was the pioneer of what's now called gamification or game theory. And 50 years ago, when Chuck developed this concept, there weren't any video games or what has evolved into this game theory. Many of these developers of various video games have used Chuck's concepts and his science of gamification to develop these very successful franchises. And Chuck was the originator of this work. And it's really an honor to know Chuck and have this opportunity to talk with him about his work, especially now, as we and most companies have migrated to a complete virtual environment. And so what we're going to talk about is a lot of the developing culture and creating corporate fabric and ensuring that the individuals within an organization have a voice, that they are recognized and appreciated. And there's a lot to this. So I hope you enjoy this conversation that I have with Chuck. I was thinking when my contact with the Slatter family began, and I think I can trace it roughly back to 74 and 75. That's exactly. Does that sound right to you? Uh, that's. I was going to say, you have, one of the reasons that I was so interested in talking with you this morning was you have a lot of that history <laughs> of the last 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I don't know what the word is. It's humbling. It's a little frightening. You know, to realize that I've known you most of your life. You have. Um, <laughs> and I had to have been alive a few years before that relationship started. So the, the old calendar pages are spinning right by here. But, you know, it's been a wonderful experience. I've always admired the organization. Obviously, uh, grandfather put some, put some principles in place. And I think the thing that, my, from my standpoint as a, outside observer, and I think maybe 
we haven't totaled it up, but I think I've probably worked with somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 CEOs in some, you know, overall installation of the game work principles, personal coaching, number of things. And I've always admired LSI because the principles were always on client satisfaction and being this amazing matchmaker between customer needs and vendor offerings. And that has just been core. I don't know that it's engraved on the wall anywhere. I know it's engraved in your heart. And uh, you've you've done just such a marvelous job of expanding on that and continuing to expand on it throughout these years. So, you know, when you think about 50 years, period, and then you think about being able to be multi-generational in the same family leadership and still privately owned, that makes you a real statistical anomaly. Yeah, I think so too. It just it, it's rare that that happens. And well, and I was fortunate over the years to have incredible mentors. My hero, my grandfather, who I you knew well, and I I think about every every day still. I have this unique opportunity. I have his desk that he actually he had bought when he was still working for the. Air Force. And I sit at that desk every day and I think about my grandfather and I think about my father as well, who was an incredible mentor to me. And you and my father have a long relationship. And so I think a lot of a lot of it was just my mentors. And Chuck, I really admired you as well. I, you, you know, one of the things that you may or may not have ever heard this, but when I started with LSI and was trying to figure out what, and I was 22 years old when I started with the company and I didn't know anything about consulting. I didn't know anything about delivering value to our clients. And my father said, the best consultant I've ever met is Chuck Coonrad. You need to talk to Chuck and you need to read his books. And a lot of what I learned about consulting when I first started my career came from from reading your books and then my interface with you over the years as well. And you really influenced a lot of my career. And I really appreciate that and our relationship over the years. It's been it's been remarkable. It's been a hoot. No thank question. You. No, thank you. Well, Chuck, let's, um, why don't you talk a bit about your work that now your work is, you're celebrating almost 50 years of consulting. As I said, you and I have had this interesting relationship where our careers touched at a, a few points. We followed you into some of your large clients at Boeing and the U.S. government, which you were very successful in consulting with some of very tough clients, (laughs) very tough clients, but talk about your work. Talk about how did this start? One of the things that people talk about today is, uh, is gaming and gamification. And I mean, you were doing this before 
before there were video games, before there was this concept of gaming, before there was gaming. So talk about your work and your, your history and how did you get into this business? It all started at a cocktail party. Like all good stories. I graduated from Michigan State. My degree is actually in supermarket operations. So I'm a box boy with a sheepskin. My grandfather was a grocer. My stepfather was a grocer after my father passed away. So I, you know, I literally grew up bagging potatoes and this will be such a weird statement for most of the younger people that will hear this, but sorting glass pop bottles. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there was a time when we didn't throw them away. You brought them back to the store for sure. So I've followed those bottles for almost, you know, six decades or so. But so I'm in Los Angeles. This is 1970, maybe four years out of college. And we're at a cocktail party back in my cocktail party days. And I meet this guy who's the national sales manager for Hearts Mountain Pet Foods. You can't make this stuff up, you know, it's just. And he said, I've just really gotten excited about a new thing I'm thinking about called Success Motivation Institute. These are some guys in Waco, Texas, that uh, started by an old uh, stuttering life insurance salesman named Paul J. Meyer, who became a life-changing mentor for me. And he said, they sell this box for like, I don't know, 500 bucks at the time with eight cassette tapes and the text and a workbook, and you ought to get one. And I said, oh, really? And, you know, cause I'm like 26 years old or something like that. You know, I'm li living in a house better than my folks. I make more money than my dad ever did. And my wife's cuter than my mother, you know? So, I mean, what, why do I need, why do I need success. I, you know, I, I, I got it, you know, but anyway, I bought this program and it was a dynamics of personal goal setting. And I started to go through and define the things that I wanted to do. And part of the exercise was a master dream list later sort of popularized as a bucket list, you know, but what, are, what is it that you want to get done in your life before it's over? So I started filling out the bucket list. And one of them was to get out of California because what we, what we used to do, I mean, this was, this was like the standard California deal shtick is you'd sit around the ski boat on the, on the Colorado river or the pool. And you'd be tossing down cold ones, bitching about California and can't wait to get out. So I mean, it was just, it was like the national, it was like the state pastime, you know, and I, I guess nothing has changed. No, you know, it's exactly, that's exactly right. You know, it's just now you take your company with you like Elon did. So exactly. Yeah. So we're doing that. So we write this down and the rest of it. Well, kind of fast forward a couple of years later, we go on a driving vacation through the mountains decide that we want to get out of California. The president of Arden Mayfair, my previous employer, was now the president of Smith's Food Kings, Alan, J., Alan P. Martindale. 
Yes. Another life-changing mentor in my life. Yes. And so who I, who I knew as well through a, yeah. well, through a different star. relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Superstar. Yes. One of the best financial minds I've ever met in my life. Okay. So we got to Salt Lake like two days after we left LA. And there was an ad in the paper for the same job that I had in Los Angeles. So it took us a while to track it down. We did some back channeling with the Smiths through the advertising department of Tribune. Right. And this, this was an offer from D. Anderson, who ran the D's restaurants and, and uh, hamburger shops. So I met, finally met with Mr. Anderson. He said, do you like to hunt? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, do you like to play golf? I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, <laughs> I probably can't have anybody working for me that has those kinds, those kinds of attitudes. So yeah, I was making $18,000 a year. And he thought, you know, that that was the most unrighteous California blood money that you, you know, you'd never, never think to make that kind of money in, in Utah. Anyway, short. So we stay here for like two weeks, sell our house in LA, find a house in the south end of the Salt Lake Valley. And I, you know, I don't have a job. I don't have Bupka. So I finally meet with D. Smith on the last day we're here. And um, D. had just built that warehouse out in Syracuse or out yeah, west of Clearfield. West Layton, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he said, you know, I promised my guys we're not going to spend any more money, da, 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 da. So I remember I'd been listening to the motivational tapes on the way up to meet with D. And I don't know where this chutzpah came from, but I said, well, Mr. Smith, I'm coming to Utah. I'd like to work for you. I'll come next week. I'll come six months from now. But my biggest problem is we've found a house. <laughs> and... I need a loan for for the mortgage. It was a seminal day in my life in terms of change. And he said, I believe you're serious. And I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, okay, um, what about, we'll start you 90 days from now. This was like June or July. And then he turned to Al and uh, he said, "Let's, let's take care of that loan. Oh, my goodness. So the next call I get about an hour later, no cell phones in those days. You know, right. In my mind, was from the senior lending officer at First Security. And uh, he said, uh, Mr. Coonrod, I'd like to be able to meet with you and get your signature on this loan app. So I said, well, we can do that. I said, how, about how long does it, does it take to approve? <laughs> And he said, you're going to be working for, for D and for Al. I said, man, he said, you're already approved. I just need your signature. That's amazing. That's an incredible story. So that's how I got to Utah. And Unbelievable. Worked for D for about a year and a half. Yep. Was approached by other people who wanted me to run. They had an employment agency that they wanted me to run. And the deal was I could start my own business at the same time. Yeah. So that's how the game of work got started on November the 1st, 1973. That is an incredible story. And this master dream list that you had, I mean, what, what did you have 
what did you list and how did you quantify that into this what ended up happening this miracle seeming miracle that that happened in your career i want to know what you had written in this dream list that that became the game of work and really created a career for you what was it that you had written well on a really personal note the first three items were get out of california (laughs) find out who god was I know what love meant in a pair of cowboy boots. What? A little, what? A little, a little eclectic. So the. Uh, well, and then looking back on that, Chuck, you achieved all three of those things as well. I mean, you, one of the most amazing individuals I've ever met is your life partner in both business and life. And she's an incredible individual. So that worked out. Yeah, that worked out really well. You um, um, have dedicated, in, in, in addition to your uh, career and changing lives of many corporate individuals, you've also done that in your faith. And I really admire that. What's the story with the cowboy boots? Well, I just had always admired it, you know, so... So here's here's the full story. We start the company with $1,500 in working capital. And that's all we had because nobody had lent us any money. So fast forward, I did get the first pair of cowboy boots. They were peanut brittle lizard from the biggest boot store in Texas in a little town that I can't remember the name of, but it's where all the Dallas sites, it's where all the Dallas sites I mean, it was like Heber 50 years ago, and the stores had failed. And so the boot store just kept knocking walls out. The boot store is now like seven storefronts. What the hell was it anyway? Was uh, it Luke, was it Lucasi? No, no, not then. No, 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 okay. Not not then. That we we upped our sin level a little later in life. So from that first pair of boots, we're now changing houses. And if you look behind me, you see that all the shelves are bare and the big lodge on the, the big lodge on the mountain has been sold. And there's oh goodness. money in the bank, a multiple or two of the 1500 bucks. And <laughs> I just, I now have something north of 20 pairs of boots and four of them just went to the di yesterday because we, the house we're moving to is half the size of the one we're in so so i don't know just i've always loved boots never had a hat never had cattle just got boots so um, what was there something on your dream list that translated into then the game of work you obviously this like i said you were incredibly fortunate you got out of california you found a god in your life and you found what love was and bought a pair of boots what was it that connected you to this lifelong really a ministry i see it as uh in in the game of work well we started so i bought the box right and i'm listening to the tapes and doing the deal and getting the goals together so then when I go to work for Smith's, Martindale is aware of this interest that I have in building people and 
implementing change. So Smith's allowed me to go to Waco and get trained. So I became an in-house trainer with SMI material inside the Smith's organization. That's right. I mean, it was crazy. We we ran copies of their copyrighted material. We were just, you know, shipping it to them. But, but the, the idea was you were going to, you were going to provide in-house training to the entire, yeah, to the entire team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the first group we did, interestingly enough, was the accounting department. You know, not exactly, not exactly the bastion of willingness to change. All <laughs> <laughs> due, due respect to the CFO at LSI. But, but, you know, these are just not, these are just not, let's go change it. But we actually took, they actually took, and using the principles, they took the, uh, amount of days to close from 30 to seven. Now, you know, think nice. about this. This is 1972, 1973. I mean, we're not, this is not whiz bang real time. Right. You know, on your screen kinds of stuff. You know, oh. we're still, I, I was still part of fighting to buy. This is, this is such a weird story, but Back in LA, I was in the purchasing department and the accounting guys used to have these calculators that were like boat anchors. They were like 18 inches cubed and they had the bar thing that ran across the top. Well, in the late sixties, we came out with electronic calculators that had little LED screens. The calculators were the same size as the mechanical ones, but the screen was about four by five. And they were the same price. And I remember trying to convince these guys to buy the new electronic stuff. And they're going, no, no, okay. we, know how to, you know, <laughs> we know how to extend invoices. And we're going, oh, my goodness. So that's the, you know, that's the change. Agent. So anyway, we're there. We have some great success. And then I get this opportunity to start a business representing them. So we use their material. It's amazing. Um, and but what we did, the, the, the wrinkle was that a lot of the people that were in that business that were distributing that material sort of dropped it off, you know, said, OK, you bought the box. Here you go. Open it here. This is where you start. And so inside Smith's, we took kind of a Sunday school approach in that people listened to the tape, read the material, and then we met once a week to decide what they'd been listening to, how it affected what they were doing and what changes they were going to make. And the big deal was let's set a goal. Well, then as part of that discovery process, the goal setting thing, we had to figure out how to get there. So we really started to say, well, how do you break that down into the steps to get to the goal? You know, again, Cubby starting with the end in mind, but then figuring out a path. Well, those turned into scorecards that was never part of the SMI thing, but it was just, so yeah. we got people sort of tracking the progress that they were making both on the job and off the job. And now we got people losing weight at home, uh, people fixing their, their finances, you know, and I'm going like, this could maybe be something, I mean, you know, just like this stuff, this stuff works. I'm going, whoa, that's really crazy. 
So then fast forward a little, little quicker. than So we built this thing around using their material, but augmenting it with the weekly meeting, return and report, accountability, short-term measurement of progress. So 1979, we do a project for the Oldham family in Provo, and they own the uh, nickel ads that you'd see at the front yeah. of the supermarket. The little right, I remember that. It was a um, it was a publishing company, and they would have coupons and things in there. And it was a it's a big part of the culture, not just locally, but in a lot of communities. Every, yeah, they were all over the place. Right. They actually had bigger circulation than the, than the primary paper in Utah County. <laughs> so they're, they're wild. So it's like a three-generational thing. Yeah, right. And we're working with them. And the son, middle generation, when we got done with the implementation, again, we got great results. That was the thing that was fun is that in 1975, I met George Odiorn, who was teaching management by objectives at the University of Utah. Yes. And I got into a conversation just talking about how fast we got results. I mean, within weeks of starting, we had people achieving stuff. And he was astounded. He said, I've never seen anything like that. So I said, well, you know, uh, but that was so we get we get great results with the Oldham family. And they said, you need to write a book. I said, well, I, I, uh, I, I don't write. I can barely talk. So they said, well, they said three magic things. They said, number one, we'll give you a co-author. And they introduced me to Lee Nelson. Lee Nelson. Who is an unbelievable writer. Unbelievable. So talk about Lee for just a second, because he's a local celebrity, but. Well, so Lee, who was a technical writer at Ford before he came West and and did the Mormon adventure series and and was just phenomenal. I have to tell you two things about Lee. So the introduction of the book is about sorting bottles, but it's not my story. It's not my story. It's Lee's. It's Lee's story what? in a safe way in Oakland, California, when he was a teenager. <laughs> so that's one that blows in it. Well, so Lee writes, and it comes out, his first draft comes out very much like a technical, almost like a textbook kind of thing. And so I can't, I'm just grabbing Mr. Olden's first name. Anyway. He goes back to Lee and he said, Lee, it doesn't sound like Chuck. (laughs) So Lee, Lee gets the message and he goes back and he rewrites the book in my voice. And you've read the book. Many times. And people say, we hear, you know, your voice comes through the book. I mean, so that's that's how skilled and how talented Lee Nelson is. Here's the other thing to know about Lee, and, and most of you won't know this, but the the Clemens family, Mark Twain, so legacy, 
found an unfinished manuscript, the name of which I can't quite tell you, but it's about half done. So they go out and interview people to finish the manuscript. And again, you certainly want to finish the manuscript in Twain's voice, in his writing style. So they interview all these authors and they pick Lee to do it. Now, if you read the book, you won't know where Twain ended and he starts. I know because he told me where it is in the page. It's about halfway through the book. Amazing. But that's, that's his, his amazing capacity. And then we also uh, worked with Lee on the book, Four Laws of Debt-Free Prosperity. And again, he pulled it off. So That's, that's incredible. So September of 1984. That book is called uh, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer Among the Indians. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Thanks. Because he, he deserves every, every credit we can. Lee, uh, when my son Cody was about 10, Lee brought a book out called Butch Cassidy and the Hole in the Wall Gang. And, right. Lee, and Lee, who's a horseman, organized these little backpacking trips in southern Utah to uh, go explore and literally ride where Butch and Sundance rode. So Cody, at 10 years old, got a chance to participate in the inaugural Butch and Sundance safari. So Amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's Lee's a big guy in my life. You know, he's he just just as amazing. So 1984, the book comes out and it it does okay. Oh, the third thing they said, second thing they said is we'll publish it, distribute it, distribute it so you don't have to worry about it. And the third thing they said was royalties. And with those three cornerstones, I became an author. Uh, so it's amazing. And Chuck, let me ask you this. Where did this concept of gamification, which I want to talk some more about, I've got something, you're, you're going to love this when, when we get to that, but where did this whole concept of, you know, I'm going to turn this into fun. I'm going to turn well, this into you're, an experience. Yeah. And the story, the epiphany is in all honesty, more of a compilation of events than a single moment the way I've told it. But let me tell it to you. So I'm, I got my little box, <laughs> box and I'm going down the street selling people. And I make a call on a gentleman who we have lost recently. His name was Joe Lichty. And Joe is kind of a combination of all 50-year-old mid-level managers. But I'm in Joe's second-story office. We're looking down, and Joe works for a company called Interstate Homes that was part of the Deal Lumber Kingdom. And my next-door neighbor... Rex Walter Wood ran it. He gave me a chance to go work with him. So I'm going and I got to get, I got to sell Joe. <laughs> so we're in his office. Joe, again, is mid fifties, mid career, not happy about any of it. And he's giving me the kids today lecture. Now we're all, familiar. <laughs> we all know this lecture, right? Kids oh don't care. my kids, goodness. Yeah. Kids can't work. 
And, and we've been telling this story for a thousand years. Is it? This is not, not a new story. Well, and what happens? Because is it you turn a certain age and then you look back and say, how come those kids that are coming? Is that genetic in us? What? What? Because it's every generation. Yeah. And let's bookmark that because I'd like to come back to some of your thoughts on on a few things. I want to hear the story about you going into interstate homes and giving this guidance. Before we do, let me just preface this by saying I had read your books a a couple of times. And as I said, I had admired your work. I had admired what you were doing and the, the clients that you were giving guidance to, and I really aspired to that early in my career, had then sort of forgotten about this for a while. In uh, last year, in February of last year, during COVID, I I brought our team together and I said, what are we going to do with COVID? And our senior leadership team said, let's send everybody home. Surely this is only going to last a few weeks. We really thought, we thought, okay, it's going to be two weeks. We'll bring everybody back. And during that time, we were meeting about how do we create these virtual environments? How do we measure productivity? One of the things that I'm not kidding you when I tell you this, one of our senior leaders came in and said, you know, we've got these young millennials working for us. They were great in the office, but they can't work unsupervised at home. So what our leader of our HR team started talking to a few of these millennials and they and said, what are you guys doing all day? They're saying, they said, we're playing video games. And they came back and I and told me this, you know, we've got these millennials, they were great kids in the office. They go off and they're lost, but no problem. They're playing 18 hours a day of video games. And I said, game of work. Go read game of work. <laughs> so, okay, come, come back to how this started about to tell the story about interstate homes. So I'm in Joe's office. Joe's <laughs> giving me the kids today. Kids can't work. Kids to get the millennials today, right? Well, and see, here's the interesting thing about that lecture is we all got it, right? Mike gave it to you. His father, you know, we all got it. That That's not unusual. But think about the day you first gave it. And you just became your parents. I know. <laughs> I know. It, it's killing me. So, so Joe takes me over the window. And he says, what are you and your box going to do about that? And that is eight 20-somethings side in the house. And to describe their workflow, you would need words like arthritic snails in wet cement. I mean, they look like Marcel Marceau, the mime, doing something at the Eiffel Tower. It's like picking up a nail. So I'm stupefied. Now, John, more than anything else, I'm a sales guy. And I've been selling hot air for for 60 years. And I'm going to tell you, and you've had this happen, you get an objection that you don't have an answer to, 
And like the clock stops. I mean, like the world doesn't turn. Okay. Right. right. So here I am at the window, eight kids on the floor, Joe across the desk, and I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> and then I get rescued by the lunch bell. <laughs> because the lunch bell rings, these eight hammers drop from their hands like they're electrified. <laughs> These eight guys take off like they were hit with cattle prods on a run. Four of them taking their shirts off to where they find a basketball hoop. And they play shirts on skins, no strat plan, no scorecard, no referee. Everybody knows their job and they know the score while the game's in progress for 42 minutes. It's like this magic clock goes off. They pick up their sack lunches and either their Coke or their Pepsi, depending on what audience I'm telling the story to. And they walk back to the workplace where at one o'clock, they're back on the clock, arthritic snails and wet cement. And I turned to Joe and I said, it's not a raw material problem. And, and what I realized at that moment is that there was stuff happening under the basketball hoop. Yes. That wasn't happening on the clock. And so we came up with this sort of a tongue twister that said, but this was the whole start. This was the uh, epiphany. And this was the question. Why will people pay for the privilege of working harder than they'll work when they're paid? It's exactly right. Okay. So that all that whole thing started. We said, okay, what? What are the keys? What, what was different? What's the dichotomy between the basketball hoop and the house? Right. And that's where we came up with what we call the five principles of the motivation of recreation. So that became the core. And they are, number one, well, I have, have to apologize for you. I thought that the goals were the most important one. That's not true. <laughs> so, right. But, right. But these are the five. Number yep. one, the feedback is more frequent in recreation than it is in work. You swing a golf club, plant a ski pole, squeeze a trigger on a shotgun, boom, frequent feedback. And, and it's dynamic. The second thing is, is that the scorekeeping is dynamic to the process. The teams know the score while the game's in play. Third, the goals are more clearly defined. And by the way, they don't change very often. Yep. Fourth, they don't change the rules on you in the middle of the game. Parenthetically, the coaching is more consistent in recreation than it is in work. And the fifth one is that there's a higher degree of personal choice in recreation than there is in work. So, you and I are both downhill skiers. You much more accomplished than I, but enough. So, so you and I recognize that there's no reason to walk up a mountain with a perfectly good lift on it. But, well, but you look at cross-country skiers, and they'll say there's no reason to pay somebody to take you where you can get on your own. It's I just I just booked a 10-day trip to Greenland next year, all skinned. It, it, it'll be 
all hiking, hike to ski for 10 days. So that's a discussion we need to have at some point. No, no, you're, you know, my daughter, my daughter Kelly is a skydiver. Right. I think there's no reason to get out of an airplane with a perfectly good engine. (laughs) And your insurance company wouldn't let you do it, Chuck. No, no, not with my, (laughs) not with my comorbidity, you know, but there was a period in my life when I had my scuba card. I remember it makes perfect sense to go just as far from the next breath right. as you possibly can, because that's fun. See, that's the choice thing. So, so what we found out is that when you start, what we found out, the underlying thing is, is that the feedback is the most important ingredient in the game of work. And one of the things we found out when we all went home is that what we missed in that collegial or collegial environment in the office was we missed feedback. We missed being told we were okay. We missed, we missed the hugs. We missed the handshakes. We missed the, here's how the project's going. What can we do to help you? How are you doing with this? How are you doing with that? So that's, to me, that's the core. And I'm actually working slightly infant stages on a new book called Always Appropriate Appreciation. So if you strip out everything about the game of work, the mechanics of the scorecard, so what do we measure, all of that stuff, what, what the game of work creates is a culture of appropriate feedback. Right. So people give us, in a full-time equivalent, they give us 2,000 hours a year And in the unenlightened organizations, you get a 45-minute performance appraisal at the end of the year. Right. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Really? Whereas if you... (laughs) No, can you imagine applying that to the modern American marriage? You know, so when the cook asks the eater, how did you like lunch? You say, sweetheart, let me get back to you with a written appraisal on our anniversary. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's see how that works. Yeah, I mean that's that's the stupidity, you know, that's the stupid equivalent or the application of that principle. So, so we work. So the process really drives to how do you get everybody to know on a daily basis whether they're winning or losing. So, Chuck, let me. Uh... I have got a lot of questions. Uh, <laughs> we can do this more, you know. We, we can, can do we can do, <laughs> we we can do this over several days, and yes. maybe we should. And I'm I love that you're you're doing some new work, and I I'm dying to talk to you about that. But let's go back to my story sure. about we we sent eighteen hundred people home. We started talking about this. I came back from Washington, D.C. The president had said, yeah, we're going to invest a couple of billion dollars into into this COVID response. That was $4 trillion ago. And uh, we sent 1,800 members of our team home from client engagements, from our corporate office, from our field offices around the country and said, it'll be a couple of weeks. We're going to 
we'll figure this out. And we're still doing this. We're still doing this now, almost two years later. Sure. You and I have worked virtually our whole lives. We have worked is the nature of consulting over the last, you know, my career, 30 years, yours, 50 years. And we've worked in our cars and we've worked in hotel rooms and at clients and, you know, at a, at a uh, gas station, right? Yeah. Many people couldn't do that. And especially the, these individuals that have never had to work virtually and it was a new game for, for them. Yeah. And as I said, we then had our HR team talking to some of our individuals in the company who they're saying, what, what are you doing all day? Well, we didn't, we don't know what to do. So we're playing 18 and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when they're saying we're playing 18 hours of video games. So Chuck, when you built, <laughs> when you built this concept of, what is now gamification and the game of work, you saw these kids playing basketball and said, oh, you know, what, what, what is it about that? That they're all excited and motivated. They go back to work and they're, they can't pull it together. We're seeing that now. And I also think what's really remarkable is you were doing this before there was any video games, before there were kids spending 18 hours a day I mean, these kids are, it, it's, it's incredible how much time they're spending in these virtual environments, right? Yeah. They go, they, we send them home. They're, they're these superstars in, in the office or at the client site. Yep. We send them home and they're, they're lost. How, in, how can that be? Well, so these, for these five principles that you're talking about, which also, by the way, were used for a lot of the, the games, the, the big games, as principles of how do you create these uh, video games that are really effective and these kids will play for 18 hours. Yeah. They used your principles in gamification to create this crack cocaine for these kids. Sure. Right? As uh, the CEO of this company and our team advising and consulting with uh, hundreds of our clients, how do we get our team now in a virtual environment? They're not on site at a client's location. They're not in the in an office, in a, our corporate office, in a field office. How do we get our team to work 18 hours a day <laughs> like- Or you know, even eight. Or even eight, even or a even good eight, eight would be a, a marg would be a well, break. And, and and that's a great point. I mean, Chuck, Chuck, it's not even, I mean, I was picking on the millennials like I often do. These kids today, they right, but it, it's not just the kids. Guess guess who is playing golf every single day? They we sent some of these, some of our executives home and they great, I'm gonna go play golf. I'm gonna go play golf every day at noon. Well, yeah, because I'm not in the office. Well, this is this is migrated as, and and what's crazy is that you know pick a pick an age point. I don't know what it is, but let's let's say it's fifty or it's forty. Let's go fifty. So everybody over fifty is get your butt back to work. You know the head of 
who was it? I don't think it was Jamie Dimon, but it was somebody of, of his magnitude in New York said, listen, if you can go out to a restaurant, you can come to the office. So that's the, the over 50 mindset and senior leadership mindset. So the people under, and maybe the people in their 40s just don't know yet, but let's say the people under 40 are going, no, 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 no. Let me explain this to you. I used to drive an hour in and an hour out, and I did that five days a week. So I can be productive. Now, you got to get them off the video games, but you know their shtick is I'm that much more productive, so I'm taking Friday off. So the, the virtual thing is, and I see this in some, you know, I have four corporate clients I do executive coaching with, and it's just, it's kind of to keep my mind wisdom, and it's fun. But that's a real frustration now. And in some of these companies, you know, somebody sent out a meeting to have 25 people on a video call on a Friday. You know, it's like, you've taken my firstborn. What, what, you know, in fact, you can keep the firstborn, but Fridays are sacred. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre how this has devolved. I think that's the right word. It's just devolved into this four-day work week. So here's the thing to keep in mind, and this is one of the things that the, quote, gamification classics, and gamification came out of Berkeley in 2004, just almost exactly 20 years after the game work was published. And it was your principles that really shaped that gamification. I think so. But what the gamers have forgotten is the fifth element, and that is the element of personal choice. So nobody is playing a game that they didn't pick and pay for. That's where we have to start in terms of the resurrection, if you will, of the millennials. And the other part is that the gamers are really big on something called leaderboards, which are not that big because used car salesmen have been, used car managers have been using that stuff since the Model T came out. But it's not a good principle because it minimizes the number of winners. And what we want to do in the game of work is maximize the number of winners. And it's the same difference between taking 124 people and and having a golf tournament where you can have a closest to the hole, farthest from the pin, most strokes. You know, you can have 12 winners and four different flights. Where if you take those same 124 people and take them to tennis, only get one survivor at the end and 123 people that go, why why did they drag my butt out here? So you want to maximize the number of winners. But I think the element, Sean, to bring them back into the fold, if you will, is we've got to start creating purpose in the day. So here's, here's the new magic question. George, what is it that you do that you get done not that you do, I'll explain that in a minute. What is it that you get done that's very valuable to LSI that we're not properly recognizing and rewarding? Now, this will produce system-wide deer-in-the-headlight look the first time you ask it, because people are going, say what? I'm going to go slow. What is it that you get done on a consistent basis that's valuable to LSI that we're not recognizing and rewarding. And the first thing that's going to go to their mind is I've never thought about that. Yeah. Now, 
once you watch that payroll for 1,800 people on, on a monthly or semi-monthly basis, you go, oh, we got to be thinking. We got to be thinking about this. Exactly. <laughs> we we have got to give this some serious thought. And so I think from an LSI standpoint, you might consider cascading that question first to your direct reports and then move it further down throughout the organization as really a CEO culture statement or a CEO culture demand. So this yesterday, yesterday we had this discussion and there was this resolution that we are in the foreseeable future. We're not going back. The world has changed forever. Our clients are saying to us, we will not meet with you in our facilities. We expect you to work virtually. We've said, great. Now, how do we build this culture? So as we're celebrating our 50-year anniversary of LSI, I said to our senior leadership team yesterday, you know, it's like we're creating a brand new culture. We are creating a, it's like a startup company in many ways. We're 50 years, we've got a huge team, but in many ways, it feels like a startup. It feels like a new company where we're creating this gamification and the timing on this is could not be better and i hear this from so many of our clients we've got a client one of our large clients they're a fortune 500 company they do about 30 billion dollars a year in revenue they announced to me last month when i was in washington dc that we had spent $2 billion on a new corporate headquarters. They've been trying to move into that for the last two years. They just made the decision as well. We're not going to do that. We're going to have a very small corporate headquarters. We're going to sell this half a million square foot building, and we're going to make this happen. So Chuck, the work that you did 50 years ago with watching the kids play basketball the game of work, which is now uh, you know, 40 years old, that was the basis for these video games and the, the game theory and the gamification science could not be more relevant today than in your last 50 years. And so when you said to me, I've got some more work to do, I'm really excited about it because I think there is such a demand for your work. There is such a need for your work. As we build this new culture, one of these questions is, how do we measure productivity? How do we measure performance? How do we ensure that everybody knows the expectations? This is how they're going to be measured. This is how they're going to receive feedback. And it doesn't matter if you're in Missoula, Montana, Atlanta, Georgia, Anchorage, Alaska, wherever you are around the world in this virtual game, this for this virtual fabric of LSI, this is the infrastructure that is going to be the game. Here's the beautiful thing about it. These kids today want the same things that the kids did 50 years ago. 
They want recognition. They want some freedom to work. Okay. Now you can't recognize what you can't measure. You can't celebrate what you can't see. All right. So that's a bit of a hiccup. But if we take the principles and say, here's the deal, you know, stake in the ground, LSI will progressively move towards a vision that every day, everybody knows whether they're winning or losing. Now, that's going to take a little different coaching mindset. It's going to take a little different dialogue with my team. Okay? But if you put that stake in the ground and start to move in that direction, your thoughts take me back 40 some odd years to L.H. Curtis and KSL. And Kurt was one of my early supporters, you know, and the game of work really works best when you've got a willing leader. You know, you got some people that they just, it's like throwing money in the wind. They just will not engage because that's the key. But Kurt said, so we're, Kurt was having some problems with the KSL senior staff about getting people to have scorecards. And so it was actually about this time of year, it's really funny. He goes, uh, I know this is a bit of a challenge, but let me help clarify this, okay? No one in this organization is going to get an increase in their compensation unless they can tell me in a scorecard why it's justified. Wow, those scorecards, those scorecards coming in so fast, <laughs> you know, but that's the, and we're doing it. Here, here's the difference between the gamers and game of work dis- disciples is that we're doing it fundamentally out of the love for the love of our people. I mean, I want to create a situation where people love to come to work here because we're a differentiate, we're in a differentiated culture from everybody we compete with for talent. Well, and this is what I said earlier. One of the things I've admired about you so much in your work and your career, Chuck, is that it really has been a ministry. It has been a ministry of what you've done and going into tough clients like the U.S. federal government, <laughs> like Coca-Cola, like Boeing, like AT&T and, and some of our clients that we have shared over the years. Sure. And you've said that this has been a ministry. You've said it's about creating a culture in which your team is truly valued. They have a voice. They're not a number. This is about helping them achieve their objectives, about helping them achieve their potential and recognizing and evangelizing that. And it's fantastic. It, it really is. And, and like I said, I just, I know that it's incredible to think now that the game of work has been out for 40 years almost, and yet it could not be more relevant today than any time in the last 40 years. And when you did this, Chuck, what, what I think was so special about this, you were talking about going into the accounting department of Smith's and they were doing longhand spreadsheets, not computer spreadsheets, handwritten spreadsheets. <laughs> and you, ch- you changed this culture. You were doing that without the technology. This 
theory and the science of gamification and game theory and this game of work was before this digital age that has adopted it, right? Yeah. In 1985, now think about this, Sean. This is like 10 or 12 years after we started the company, okay? I got introduced by a client to Lotus 123. And I made the determination at that time, you know, there's that old saw about they were going to close the patent office in 1852 because everything had been invented. Well, I knew I knew in 1985 we could shut it down because we had just that was oh my goodness. Lotus 123 was the first digital spreadsheet. It was the precursor to Excel and access and all of the database it really was the foundation for every database that is used today yeah lotus one two three (laughs) and you could push a button and you could press a button and create a chart exactly now now for the first for the first 12 years of the game of work we were rulers four function calculators and grid paper and so worked Now, what we've got is, and this is what I, when I wrapped up this meeting yesterday, I had a five-hour meeting with our senior leadership team. And most of it, we talked about this. How are we going to create this new culture? How are we going to use technology? How are we going to use technology to collaborate, to measure performance, productivity, throughput, value, the value of the individual. How is that going to happen? And there's an infinite amount of tools out there. What advice do you have for our team and for our clients and and others that are going through this? I think I know what you're going to tell me on this, but it can be overwhelming to look at the amount of technology and tools out there that exist. What advice do you have where you were working with clients 40 years ago where there was no, there were no digital tools. You were, you were, you were creating charts that there were artists creating these charts, right? How do we take this gamification concept and leverage a a technology that exists? A couple of things. I don't know if you remember, there was a futurist called Faith Popcorn. She did the popcorn report. I do. I do remember. Yeah, absolutely. And Faith identified a principle that was high touch inside high tech. And what she said is that we got all this technology rolling out, right? We're going to put it on your screen. We're going to do a spreadsheet. And what she fundamentally touched on was that's going to create the need for human interaction. So I would say the first conversation is don't let the technology overrun the touch. Okay. And the the other part we have to keep in mind is that the most important part of this game, if you will, is teaching our leaders to be servant leaders and to be reinforcing the principles of helping our people grow. You know, when we went to the 
Holy Land, and you got drugged into the Mormon Connection olive wood carving store with, uh, I remembered a guy's name in a minute because it's like, he's the guy. So the only, the only one I really brought back, because I really think this is the best picture every one of us needs in our, in our office, is the statue of the Savior washing the disciples' feet. I love that too. I, and I've used that many times. I, you can summarize the entire Old New Testament with a few verses, which is that. Yeah. So if you get down and you say now to, your, to the top leaders, okay, I have this vision of people knowing on a daily basis whether they're winning or losing. And oh, by the way, our job is to be either a cheerleader or a teacher, no critics. So you're either celebrating with your people and we'll, you know, that's a whole conversation in and of itself, or you're accepting responsibility for any shortfall they have and you're fixing it. If you can do those two things, then get on the bus, pick your seat. It will be the right one if you have that kind of attitude. Absolutely. Chuck, this has been amazing. And I, I got through like a tenth of the content that I wanted to discuss with you. Maybe if you're willing that we, we do another discussion, I really want to you know, to talk about how this uh, relates to business development, which is our discipline and uh, our, our science. I think we've pioneered through the founders of LSI 50 years ago. I, I mean, I didn't invent any of this. I, I, I feel like we've perfected it and we've taken this science to a different level. But I really want to explore with you the game of work and business development, because we've incorporated some of your principles over the, the years, and maybe we could even collaborate on a project that I've been thinking about for some time. But before we wrap this up, and like I said, I, I knew this was going to happen. I knew that you and I were going to start to talk, and this would happen. But could you talk a little bit about, like I said, you are one of those individuals that have really influenced my life, my career. You do have some of that history of LSI, the early LSI, and you've seen the evolution of LSI over the years as we've worked together and we've done things socially. Yeah. Do you have any uh, memories or thoughts over the last 50 years of of LSI that you can share? You know, I've been thinking about that. You know, I don't, I wish I had an old grandpa story for you, (laughs) you know, but I really don't. I remember probably one of my regrets over the years is that we didn't figure out a way to be, to work more closely together. And I remember a couple of interactions with some of your senior people where I was less humble than I needed to be. and, And I have rude that day on many occasions, because I think there's a, you know, I may just wind up leaving this to you in my will. (laughs) But, you know, because what? Yeah, I'll talk to Carla about that. Yeah, okay. But I'm I'm sure you've thought about some of the possibilities about going forward that have sort of popped, bubbled up during this phone call. Oh, my gosh. And, and we might want to have some 
purposeful discussion about future possibilities. I would love that. Like I said, I, I really, you have, have shaped a lot of my thinking, especially early in my career. And I cannot, you know, I've said this several times, I cannot emphasize enough how relevant and important your work is now as companies are trying to, and we, we're doing this, and it's our whole corporation, it's our teams, it's our clients trying to interface with each other. How do we communicate value? How do we recognize value? How do we reward and incentivize performance? There's a lot of that thinking that you pioneered 40 years ago. That, and so my advice to everyone that hears this, buy Chuck's book. You can get it on Amazon. I, I keep talking about the game of work, but you've, you've got scorekeeping for success and a lot of, I, I think you've written six or seven books, five, five books. I, I think I have them all in, they're in our corporate library. <laughs> anybody that wants to come in, anybody that wants to come into the office and pick up Chuck's book out of the corporate library, come do it. <laughs> uh, because I've got every one of them, but really or, order it off of Amazon, download it, buy his books, buy his work. It is to our team, to our clients, to the business development community that is trying to figure this out, especially now. This really is the foundation for a lot of the success in creating business development teams, in creating successful win-win themes in creating functional organizations within a corporation. And I just, I heard a story once of somebody reading this old text and you know, saying, wow, this is, this really is great stuff. When was this written? It was, it was written 500 years ago. <laughs> that, that's your work. That's your, I, I mean, you were just so far ahead of your time and I would love to collaborate, Chuck. And I'm, I'm really excited that you're continuing to be creative because I do think you've got a lot left to contribute, especially now working with, I mean, I, I think you could write a whole book on the, the, the my story of the millennials playing video games. Yeah. What, I can't even think of the, uh, game that these kids are playing for days hours well, probably probably Fortnite or <laughs> yeah but anyway this is exactly what you're saying they're, the reason that they're doing that is these gamers the, the game companies figured this out they figured sure. out the, they figured out the crack the, the heroin of addicting individuals to this long term as leaders of these organizations, that's how that is that those same principles is how we bring these virtual in, environments into a true fabric, sure. a corp, corporate fabric, a corporate culture, a discipline that is going to be effective for the next 50 years of our company. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it just, to it. the principles are great. And if we could find a way to put some young legs underneath it and, and carry it forward. Yeah, well, we're going to give this work to Lauren. So <laughs> I've skied already this year at Alta. Oh, practicing your skinny, your, your, 
we we ski my youngest daughter mary and i skied last month we skied yeah. uh before halloween on that in that big uh snowstorm and i can't wait to ski with you you tell me when when you're ready to ski and i'll be there well we're doing this on the last epidural injection and uh, it uh, we're looking forward to being up there not too far after the uh, opening on the 12th so Great. I look, I can't wait to ski with you. Uh, yeah, I can't okay. wait to ride the chair. <laughs> <laughs> we might, we might have to bring, we might have to bring Lauren and a tape recorder. <laughs> you, you and I have had some great day skiing over the years. There's no bad day skiing. There's no bad day skiing. Chuck, this has been tremendous. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I, I appreciate our friendship. I appreciate the importance, the role that you've played to our family for 50 years. And you, there's a lot behind this. I really attribute the relationship between my parents to you and Carla. And I want you to know how much I appreciate the impact that you've had on me, on my family, on my work. This is really I know over the years, you rarely hear that you, you as a leader don't get feedback, right? I mean, what you're, what you're evangelizing is, hey, you got, you've got to tell all of your team, your people, this is how you're doing and how to do it. As a leader, you never get feedback, right? You rarely get that kind yeah. of uh, feedback. I want you to know, I appreciate that your story about D. Smith early in your career. I, I want you to know how much you've impacted my career, how much I appreciate what you've done for me, for my family. You're an amazing individual. And thank you. Thank you so much, Chuck. Well, the beautiful thing about what I get to do is I get to watch people take this these principles and apply. So I live vicariously through your application of what we've done. And this has been a great hour and a half. It's been fantastic. Tell Carla, I look forward to seeing her. And thanks again, Chuck. This has been amazing. We'll do this again. Okay. I'll say this one last time. Everyone that listens to this podcast, please buy Chuck's book. Get it (laughs) off of Amazon. You can buy it off of his website, gameofwork.com. Thanks, Chuck. My pleasure.